Very, very good to, uh, to be with you guys this morning, and I heard so much about you and uh, Tori, and um, I have some dear friends uh, at the Austin Stone who speak very highly of you, so it's just really good to be with you. Um, I, before I was at the Austin Stone, I was a, a church planter for five years in um, getting to talk to Tori uh, some, just about some of the history and um, what church a building has looked like and moving forward in, in being a community. This just I feel like I'm, I'm back home. And so I really, uh, I texted my wife, said, you'd be really jealous right now because this is, uh, this is her kind of community. And so um, I hope that this morning, um, as we open up the scriptures, that we would be exactly what we have been singing about and what we were praying for, that we would find great encouragement. And uh, the, the Word of God does that, yes? It, it, the Word of God does a lot of things. Um, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to do exactly what Jesus says He would. It's to convict the world of sin and lead us to repentance and to comfort those who mourn. And so uh, there is this multifaceted ability that the Holy Spirit brings when dealing with us. And so I think that's what's so unique on a Sunday morning. I think about every story represented in this room. Every family situation, every dynamic of how you grew up, um, every anxiety with a job or a lack of job, um, how exhausted you are as a parent or not a parent, how much you want to be married or how much you are married, thinking, man, I remember what it was like when I wasn't married. It could be everything in between. We all walk to this place and come to this place with some very unique um, perspectives, um, cynicisms, Curiosities, mysteries, pains, suffering, struggles, joys, satisfactions, everything in between. I think that's what makes the body of Christ so utterly unique is that we come from these different places yet saved by grace through faith and then we have this, this, this thing that we get to sing about and proclaim and find hope in that is unlike anything else. And so my hope is as we open up Genesis chapter 14 that we're going to see that. And so I know that we've been going through Genesis here as a church. And so Genesis 14 is where we're going to camp out uh, this morning. Now, um, I am not going to be reading all of Genesis 14. Uh, there are um, many times where I would, I would do that, but not this particular chapter. They're uh, just, just uh, full disclosure, the first 10 verses, they're just some names I just can't pronounce. And just halfway through, I just kind of waved the white flag a few days ago going, I'm not even attempting that. Like, I'm going to cause more harm than good for this community. And so uh, what we're going to be doing with Genesis 14, instead of um, exegeting every verse, which I would prefer to do and I would really like to do, uh, we're going to bump out a little bit, about 10,000 feet, to look down at Genesis 14 and help us see the narrative because there's some different narratives within the narrative. That's what we see in the Bible anyway. It's this large narrative and narratives within that and narratives within those narratives. And so we're going to look at Genesis 14 and there are about five or six things we could spend our time uh, teaching on this morning and I I believe valuing deeply and being changed by. We're going to talk about one, maybe two of them. Uh, One, maybe two of them. And and I think... uh, Either one of them or both of them are going to resonate very personally with us and very uniquely with us. It certainly has for me as I've gone through this chapter. Now, let's just kind of look back at Genesis 12 and 13 briefly to make sure we have this set up properly. Now, starting in Genesis 12, we were introduced to this man named Abram. Uh, Abram, who we come to know as Abraham, uh, Abram it meets with the Lord. The Lord reveals himself in the first three verses of Genesis 12, gives him a very unique call. 
You remember this call? It's full of mystery. It's full of a demand of faith. Um, there are many questions being asked in the psyche and the heart of Abram that are not being answered in the first few verses of chapter 12. But it simply looks like this, God coming to him and saying, um, I'm calling you to go to this place. And I'm not telling you exactly where the place is. Just start walking, leave everything you're comfortable with, leave everything you know, everything in which you have built up your identity and your confidence in who you are. I want you to leave that. You're going to trust me to be all those things instead of what you built. And you're going to go, and I'll let you know when you arrive. That's like worst case scenario for type A people, am I right? It's like my five-year plan, I'll just let you know, you'll wake up, it's like, we're here. Like, here? Like, there is no specific planning in communication to Abram. Just go. You're going to trust me for everything along the way. And then he says this, and I find this the most riveting aspect of his call. In fact, I think it's the part of his call that, that unpacks gospel narrative more than anything else. He says, I'm going to bless you. And his description of how he's going to bless him is, is infinite. He says, I'm going to bless you um, in ways that you can't imagine. Uh, your ancestors will be uh, as numerous as the stars. I'm going to reproduce and multiply um, families and generations through you. All because of what's about to happen. Now that sounds nice. That sounds like a really good plan, but it doesn't quite draw a lot of emotion, right? He says, I'm going to bless you. It's all vague. But then there's this comma. He says, I'm going to bless you. You remember what the, what the next statement is. So that you will be a blessing. And it really unpacks the nature of the gospel. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. And not a vague one, not a general one, but one that imparts with word and ways, actions and with speech, a people who brag about the grace that has been given to them. Like, that's what he says. I'm going to bless you. You don't warrant it. You literally didn't even know I existed. I showed up. I'm going to bless you, and I promise I'm going to do it. Even when you are unfaithful, and that good news for us? Because even when you are unfaithful, then you read Abram, it does not take long. He's lying about his wife being his sister. He does this a couple of times, by the way, because he doesn't learn the first time. He's going to go through some things. You're going to read about him and think, this is a dirty, filthy man. And it should make you feel that way about him. Because all the more it shows how preposterous and wonderful grace is that God would come to a man like him and say, I'm going to bless you, not based upon what you said or done, not because you seem like you have some real leadership potential, Think we've got some real possibilities with this guy. It's not because of that. It's because I'm just loving that way. I'm going to do that. I'm going to use your life as a story to exemplify my character to the ends of the earth through you and your family, which means you're going to trust me some days, and I'm going to be glorified through it. And other days, you're going to act like I've never met you. You're going to behave in your flesh in such a way that people will look at you saying, is this not a man of God? Well, then who is he? And yet still, I'm going to choose to protect you, care for you, love you, uphold you, be your stronghold, uh, be your, your, uh, the one who promises things and comes through in the promises. I'll be your provision regardless so that you can offer the same thing to others, that you would bring in flesh what I am bringing to you in mind and heart. I love that chapter, and really those three verses, I think it just, it lays out what it means to venture with God. And that really is a majority of the book of Genesis. 
If you look at 12, 13, and now 14, you're really learning about a man named Abram who's figuring out what it means slowly to venture with God. That word venture is not one I use often. Adventure, sure, but to venture is very active. means an ongoing process, this verb, this action of me risking and trusting. And that's literally what we read about Abram. So as we come to chapter 14, we see a couple of different things that they've gone through. Um, Abram and his family are in the middle of war. And there's two kinds of wars that they are experiencing. In chapter 13, we see the war that most of us all are very accustomed to in our own life. It's family war. So chapter 13 is the narrative of a feud between family. It's Lot and Abram. Abram being the uncle, and you have this nephew, Lot. They're close. They love each other. But somewhere along the way, you start seeing some of the differences between the two men. They're both broken men. They both, I believe, are spiritual men. But they start to play out their obedience or lack thereof in different ways. And in chapter 13, you see there's this huge amount of land, and they just can't seem to get along for some different reasons. In chapter 13, we realize that. And so out of grace, Abram turns to Lot and says, you know what, pick, pick the land you want. Like, here's the best land. Go for it. I'll take what you decide not to. Which, if someone does that to you, you always wonder, is this, is this a trick? Are you saying pick that, but you really know something's wrong and you're hoping I'll pick that, so I'm going to pick this? Or should I do one of these? I'll pick this. Nope, picking this one, and I want to see your reaction to see if that bothered you. Instead, he just says, just choose your land. I, I, will, I will pick the other land. And there's some kind of separation that happens between them, right? A separation that happens. Then we come to chapter 14. Instead of reading it all, I want to give you a, a layout of the first 10 verses, and then we'll start unpacking the scripture itself instead of just hearing me blab about it. Um, you have Lot and his family who now are literally in the middle of not just a family feud, but now a cultural feud. Um, there is an absolute war at place. Uh, they are caught in the midst of a great, great war. And what's happening in the first 10 verses is you have these uh, subsidiary states you have these smaller states that to some degree they have their own leadership. To some degree they have uh, their own provision. To some degree they have their own autonomy. But by and large they still respond to and in some way should perform are slaves to this Lord. So you have this warlord basically. This, this man who is this king who is the wealthiest of the wealthy and owns all the land. And yet still allows them to have some kind of leadership to themselves. It's not because he's kind. It's because he doesn't want to have to oversee all of them. And what starts to happen in these subsidiary states is they come together and they plan a coup. So this revolt happens and they are trying to overtake this lord and create their own established kind of country. Now, we learn that it doesn't go well for them. It starts out strong and goes downhill pretty quickly. And in the middle of all this, um, this Lord and his militia, they gather all the people in the areas of Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't care who they are, don't, don't care about their story. They take them to captivity. They become slaves. They take them away from their homes. They separate them from their families. It is a worst case scenario. I'll read this real quick just so we have an idea of what's happening in verse 11 and 12 of Genesis 14. It says, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went away there. And they also took a lot and the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom. That's a really key part, by the way, in Sodom. And took his possessions and he went their way. 
So what you and I are getting in chapter 12 is a front row seat to the calling of a broken, imperfect man. The promises of God not dependent on man's actions first. Chapter 13, we get a front row seat to a family feud. And the reason that's a big deal for us is because I think this is just worth noting. Um, We all have these very unique struggles, do we not? Um, Very unique. We have anxiety. That's like the real thing now in 2017, anxiety. If you don't have anxiety, then you just don't fit in anymore. Um, We have anxiety, and I speak as one who has battled deeply with that and depression. Um, we have anxiety, we have depression, we have our five-year plans, we have um, what should my family look like, 2.5 kids is the national averages, what does that 0.5 child look like, um, uh, what does the white picket fence look like, I should have the Yukon or the Tahoe or what's a, a knockoff version of that so it makes me look like I have that, um, I need some kind of sedan, I need some kind of rhythm in life, what kind of friends do I have, am I involved in church, to what degree am I involved in church, do I like my job, how much do I make, is it as much as they make or less than they make, how How about hobbies? Do I have any hobbies? I'm pretty boring. I don't think I have hobbies. I should create a hobby. I don't know what my wife wants from me. What do I want from her? Why are my kids the most rebellious kids on the planet? That's just a small sampling of the things we go through every week. So we're all coming from these unique places. And what the enemy starts to convince us of is your struggles, your doubts, your cynicisms, the weightiness on you, it may not sound different than a lot of people, but it's uniquely different to you. And others can't understand you. It's the reason why we refuse to be in community often, right? It's the reason we can be in Sundays or in a missional community, rubbing shoulders and elbows with other people, actually, even on accident, and yet still feel all alone. It's the reason we can be in environments like this and feel like we're a part of a family and yet still believe nobody actually gets me. There's a reason why. Because we'd be convinced that our story is unlike anyone else's story, and so no one can truly speak into it. One of the great graces of the Bible is you are hard-pressed to find a situation that you would even think about going through that's not in the Scriptures. The Scriptures have this way of telling us about the heart of man, about the situations of family, of marriages, um, of, of not being able to have children, of having too many children, of having a great job, no job, being poor, being rich, and everything in between. From Genesis to Revelation, we come across people just like us, broken, have moments and pockets of success and trust and faith, followed by a moment of unbelievable rebellion. And that's in place so that you and I can go back and say, I can see myself in Abram and in Lot. I can see myself. See, what we like to do is go, I want to find the people in Scripture that I aspire to be like, and I just want to do that. But we forget when we go to read about David, who breaks all Ten Commandments in about a day and a half. And you read Psalm 51, where he is laying out in confession all of his brokenness. We sit there and go, I get that, man. I get that. I understand that. When we see all the disciples leave, except for John, at the cross, we look at all the other ones afraid to stand out. We go, I get those guys. When we see Peter just constantly talking before he thinks, we're like, <laughs> I get my man Peter. Like, we, 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 we identify with the good, bad, and ugly, and that's on purpose. That's on purpose. That's God's way of making sure we know 
Our story is not some separate story that is not impacted by the scriptures, but that this is not some historical document that simply gives us some wisdom about some things. It actually jumps off the pages, tattoos itself into our hearts to teach us, to instruct us, to comfort us, and personally address us. That is stinking good news for us, isn't it? It means we don't just have community here. We have what we read later on in Hebrews as great cloud of witnesses, including some of the people we come across here. When you come across war in the Bible, um, war is weird. <laughs> it's an understatement. I understand. But war is strange because we don't always know what it means to live in war. Um, maybe in the last 10 years, 15 years, we, we have friends or family who have been in war, but it hasn't been truly on our doorstep to where we're actually feeling the every day, every hour consequences and demands and sacrifices of what it means for our family to be fighting a fight against some ruler, okay? I don't mean metaphorical or emotional. I mean physical war, all right? So when you see in the Old Testament in particular, you read out war, it's easy for us to look at that and distance ourselves from it because we're like, okay, that's a season of war. I don't really identify with that. Here's what you always have to know when you read the scriptures. When you see the word war, the goal is not to teach you about simply the actual war going on. It's showing you that there's no way of fixing that by human hands. That all it took was 14 chapters into the first book of human history and war has begun. Doesn't take long. That war is in place as we see in scripture because the Bible wants us to have some introspection and see there's a larger war that's going on, a more significant war that's constant, and it rages inside of us for faith and trust. And we want power. We want control. We want our comfort. We want to be approved of. And when those things get beat up, we are ready to fight regardless, yes? And so war between countries is just a large-scale version of actually what's happening in our own hearts every day. It's just a magnified version of our own soul. So when you read in the Old Testament about war, you look at these countries, you look at what they're doing, you're going, man, that's, that's just me and my life. That's how I operate. So we come across the story of Lot. Lot has been taken into captivity. His family, his, his kids, wife, all his possessions into captivity. I think it's worthwhile uh, making mention of just the word captivity. Is there anything that sounds more horrifying? Um, come across a news story or you hear some story passed down about someone in some form of captivity. It's absolutely horrifying. There's no way you can read this and move past they were taken captive and think, hmm, that sounds like it's a really tough season for them. But you actually, it should produce in you a compassion and an empathy. They are going through a living hell. Now, Put yourself in Lot's shoes now. Here they are living in Sodom, which we're going to talk about in a moment. And not only is his family and friends separated and taken into captivity, now belonging to evil men who want only their own desires. They don't care about keeping them a unified family. They don't care about meeting their needs. They don't care about are you thirsty or hungry? Do you need to be held? Do you need uh, some kind of blanket? They don't care about any of that. Now imagine being Lot. Imagine not only being taken into captivity, but being the one truly responsible for it. Like, think about that first night where he's giving thought to the leader of my home. We're in this city now in captivity because I was greedy. 
I decided to tell my uncle, see ya. I'm smarter. I have more wisdom. I'm in a great land. It's fruitful. Look at the soil. (laughs) And because of these decisions, now I'm the one who is truly to blame for my son and my daughter screaming, will I see you again? Imagine the amount of guilt Imagine the amount of weightiness. See, we love, hey, we love doing some older brother stuff when we read scripture. Like, well, you know what? That's what he gets. He's a dirty man. We are, the point, we are dirty in our hearts. So when you read someone like Lot, you should see yourself in them. Not as, who's the good guy here? Abram and the bad guy is Lot. It's, they're both bad guys, and so are we. But one just happens to be walking in some obedience to grace more than the other. <laughs> That's how you view these stories. Think about how deflating this is for a man like Lot. Now, Lot was a worldly man, okay? By worldly, I don't think it means he was completely unspiritual. I don't think he had poor intentions all the time. I think um, he saw things of the world and thought deeply about them. And he began to believe and feel, that looks great. I want a house like that. I want an ease of life like that. I'm really tired of this whole journey without being told where we're going to stop Abram won't tell me anything. It's time for me to find the things that I want, to find a deep breath for my family. We need rhythm. We need to be provided for. My kids need the best schools, not a mediocre school, right? I'm a good parent. The best schools. That's what makes me a great parent. I want my wife to not have to worry about anything. I don't want to worry about anything. And so when he distanced himself, it came because he didn't only see the things of the world going, those things look nice. Because I want those things for myself, and I want to grab a hold of those things and not let go. Now, you'll notice some things about the way the progression happens for Lot in chapter, chapter 13 and chapter 14. Both verse 12s. Look at what happens in chapter 13, verse 12. We'll go back to this chapter. It says this. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So a chapter earlier... He finds his whole land, and there's the city. He's like, I'm not going to go into the city. We've all heard about how bad that city is and the people. But if I can get close to it without being in it, and we'll live here. Look at the soil. You go one chapter later when he is taken to captivity in verse 12. We'll read this. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. So something happens in a chapter where he's on the outskirts, and now he lives in the heart of the city. And there's just something unique about when we look at Lot. I think we can identify. Because I don't think often we sit there and think, I immediately want to jump into the deep end of the worst things. But I want to get close enough to experience some of his life. But still follow and have lordship with Jesus. I just want to get close. I'm not going to destroy my character. None of that. I'm not going to get that close. But over one chapter, there's something about the heart of Lot. He just keeps consuming and consuming and consuming. And all of a sudden, he's in the dead center of the city that he swore he'd never be in. I just find that very interesting of an escalation. Now, here's the thing about um, worldliness as we talk about Lot and us. It's easy for us um, to think, okay, so look at the things of the world. Say, I don't want those. I only choose Christ. Okay, th- that sounds like a really good bumper sticker. Practically, how does that play out? Does that mean we can't have nice things? Does that mean I have to have the worst car? Does that mean um, I should have truly the worst house on the block? 
Does that mean I should not buy any kind of nice clothes? Does that mean I should only eat ramen every night, every morning, and for lunch? College students and those in your 20s are like, there's nothing wrong with what you're saying right now. <laughs> like, is that a good point that you're making? It sounds great. Um, does that mean I have to intentionally pursue a life without? No. Like, one of the things that gets lost is, is our father is a perfectly good father, and fathers love to give gifts to their kids. Dads, is this true? Love to give gifts to your kids, even ones that don't make any sense. Like, I spent too much on that. Just enjoy it. You'll get rid of it in two weeks, I'm sure. You, you want to give good gifts. Why? You want them to enjoy it. So, yes, God does give us even really good things. Like, think about spouses, um, children. He does give us homes, communities, church. He gives us health for some of us, right? He gives us jobs that give us paychecks. That he gives us raises. He gives us things that we enjoy. Listen, you should enjoy them. If you live in a world, you're like, I can't enjoy anything nice. Wrong. That's not the gospel. That's some sense of like beating yourself up and trying to prove to yourself that I am worthy of God's love. No, enjoy what he brings to you. That's not the issue with a lot. The issue is that he shows us the two different hand reactions that we all have when it comes to things that are nice. Think about anything. Think about good gifts. I, I mentioned a few. Just think about the two or three things that you love the most, and they're good. We have two typical responses and postures to them. If he's given us good gifts, if he's given us good things, we have a way of not simply holding them and enjoying them, saying, thank you, Lord. But have you noticed our grip starts to do this? Yes? It's like, thank you for this. I, I dare you to try to pull it away. <laughs> and if anyone comes near it to try to take it or to diminish it, we are willing to fight. That's what starts happening. It's called idolatry. It's a gift meant to teach you that he's a good father. And we have a way of saying, thank you. The father piece, we're done. This is the ultimate thing. You were the ultimate thing, the gift giver. Now the gift has become the ultimate thing. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, if we have not been given those certain things, we've been given other things, but if we haven't been given those things, we have a way of finding the one thing that we have not been given. And that's the one thing that is a secret to our joy. Am I right? I just need a little bit bigger house. Honey, how in the world do you want me to have hospitality in this side of the house? I can't do it. Like, I'll be, I will be godly with our home, but we need an upgrade pronto. We do that, you watch godliness ooze from my life, but I need that in order to happen. So we become not people who grip because we don't have it yet. We become people who reach. Grasp, 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 and it consumes us. So much so that you're so uh, discontent in your own home, your own community, your own neighborhood, and your own schools. You can't enjoy anything. It's constantly this aspiration of grasp, grasp, grasp. If it's I'm single and I want to be married, instead of saying, God, a spouse I believe would be such a gift. And I want to be a husband. I want to be a wife. Oh, God, would you bring this gift to me? We have a way of turning that into if you don't. I'm going to get one myself. I'm going to take matters into my own hand. I'm just going to start grasping. Are you single? Boom, not anymore. <laughs> grasp, grasp. And there starts to become a belief as every month goes by, year goes by, as every friend gets married and you begrudgingly go to their wedding going, 
hate everything here. That's, that's, that, that hits our minds, yes? It's because we start thinking, it's that person that will complete this whole thing I've been looking for. It's that marriage that seems to be the norm, and I need that, and I will do what's necessary to grab a hold of it. So you see with Lot, he grasped, grasped, grasped because he was discontent. It wasn't just, hey, it's nice soil. He was like, that's what I've been missing. I have the God who made everything, the God of the Bible. I seemingly have a great family, but I need all of that, that city, that soil, those schools, that job, and those curious people that are giving me weird looks, but I think they could be my friend. I don't know. Those are the ones I've been missing. That's what I need. That's the special something. Do you identify with those? I mean, all the sermon is, is just me laying out my life. It's pure therapy session for me. So this is my life. Now, I think about when we have three kiddos. I think about um, after Paige was born, she's 11 and a half. Um, we had multiple miscarriages. And then my wife had a very, very sudden emergency surgery. She survived. And doctor said, there's not a chance, not a chance you'll have any more. Um, by God's grace, it, we did have two more. That was amazing. But I learned something in between Paige being born and the other two. That we went through a couple of years where we were convinced, unless you give us this, you're not good. You're not worth it. You're not truly a treasure to be pursued. This idea of what we want for the next five or ten years is what truly would bring us hope. We went through some really dark seasons there, and I don't think it all was about the miscarriages. I think our hearts became very revealed. Ever you had a moment like that? You ever had seasons like that? Things get exposed, like my heart is really ugly. It's true. That is typically how it goes. About 10 more minutes here and we'll be done. We see this in our houses. We see this with children. We see this with our jobs. Um, they are no longer gifts to be enjoyed. They become ultimates. Even if you get into that house and needs a little bit of work, the next two years are going to be pure mayhem because everything has to be fixed and perfect before you can finally breathe. Can I just tell you what's going to happen? You're going to fix all the cracks in the walls. And you're going to paint everything. You're going to have your rooms divided the way you want them to. and everyone's, Everything's going to look great. And then there's just going to be no, another thing. And it may not be the house, it'll be something else. It's always unrest when we reach for these things. This is the world's mentality. So we have these two ways that we like to chase after gifts. We hold on to them, the grip, or we go after them hard. I think this is the first thing. There's two points here, kind of back-to-back. First point, I think, in this text is that you're seeing a narrative of Lot about his heart. I think you're seeing a narrative about this man who, I mean, when you read about him, he's not always like walking around doing foul things. But he just seems to have a way of believing these really nice things, they have to be ultimate. And he starts living with the mentality of the world. That's why they're called worldly things. It's not because they're ultimately bad. It's because if they become your prize, then they let you down accordingly. And here he's experiencing, his family's experiencing being let down by his pursuits. We then come across this guy, Abram. I just wish we could read so much scripture here because there's so many things going on. I'm having to skip a part about uh, a, a, a man that, that Abram meets with. I think it may be the best part of the chapter, but hey, that's for another time. We see this man named Lot, we, uh, Abram, and we see the way he responds to Lot. Now, just think about this for a minute. We have a warning in scripture of don't let your heart be fooled like Lot's. 
But then there's another way your heart can be fooled. What if you're not that person? Whether it's your spouse who's that, that person or someone in the church who's that person or a family member or mom and dad or son or daughter or a coworker, they're that person. You look at them like you're hearing the sermon going, mm-hmm. there's four people that come to mind. They are, this, they are a lot. Like you don't see a lot in yourself, but you've, you, you sit here going, but at least I have the grace of being able to recognize the lot in others, right? <laughs> it's a paradox in case some of you are going, that sounds right. It's, it's wrong, okay? It's called pride. But let's say you're sitting here thinking that's somebody else, right? Well, then we have a man who shows us actually biblically how to respond to a person like that. We are this person. But if that is true and there are people in your life, which I'm sure there are, who are lots, how do we biblically respond to them? I think we see this in the way that Abram responds. Verse 14, 15, and 16 of Genesis. Genesis 14, he says this. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house. Simply means they are very close to him. They're like sons or like brothers. That's what it means. 318 of them. He went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's a a location, not a person. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants defeated them, pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. It's hard when you read stories like this because so much happening so fast, it doesn't leave a lot of room for proper emotion, right? Like when you read Jesus in the Gospels interacting with certain people, the leper, the adulterous woman, um, uh, the, the, the Pharisees, um, when he has these conversations with Peter, John, there seems to be room for the emotional response to it, right? But when you go in the Old Testament and you, you have a chapter and all this stuff's happening, it's hard to slow down and just kind of emotionally feel involved in the story. So I think that's what we need to do for the last five minutes. Because I think you need to understand what's going on not only with Lot, but now with Abram. Now, Abram is not a perfect man. He's a mess. I'm telling you, if you haven't learned it yet, he becomes crazy. He does some really wicked things. Really wicked things. But God has called him. He is using him. He's stirring something in him. And when he hears about Lot, who he had a major falling out with, who here has had a falling out with a family member? How? Like, that's everyone. Like, I'll just, your, your eye blinks, I will take as a hand raise, all right? Like, to all of us. Right? It's all of us. We all have the story or that story or those people or they have done that to us or we have been. We all have that to some degree or another. There's a falling out between these two who have been so inseparable. They're, they're distant now. What happens when someone betrays you, takes from you, mistreats you, literally puts you down in front of the rest? What's your typical go-to response to that? Be blessed. <laughs> like, good riddance. If you never come back, let me think. That's fine. <laughs> Bye. So this has happened, but Abram hears about it. His first response is he finds 318 men. And I love how it says, born in his house. He, he, the writer wants you to know, men that he loved, that if he's going to go to war with them, if one of them died, it would be feeling like a family member died. It's not just like, oh, let's find some soldiers. Got a lot of them. (laughs) 
318 sounds like a great number. Just come here. If your name starts with J, you know, it wasn't that. He selects ones he knows and can trust. Ones that if something happens to them, he has to go back home and tell their families. This is a very personal matter. And then he has this plan going in the middle of the night. So he executes. He gives everything he has to get his dude back. And he finds Lot and his family, his sons and his daughters, and possessions, by the way. I mean, he has thought through it all. They defeat this large army, and he gets them back. What you see in chapter 14 is not just the messiness of worldliness in Lot. You see the ministry of reconciliation in Abram. You see what, what we were reading about earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, that the gospel of reconciliation is the gospel that, according to Ephesians 2, that the consequences of our sin is that we are dead in our sin, not in a coma, not kind of on a lazy walk, not for a swim, not taking a nap, not needing to be woke up, dead in the morgue. Dead in our sin. Secondly, in Ephesians 2, we learn the consequence of our sin as we are separated and alienated from God and his promises. Then you go read 12, 13, and 14 of Ephesians 2. Paul says a third consequence to our sin is that we have a wall that we have built up of hostility and enmity toward God. Meaning, we don't want his help. We don't like him naturally. We don't love him naturally. He's an inconvenience to us getting what we want because he always says no. He always says, don't eat of this tree. But I want to eat of that tree. I'm going to lord myself. I'm going to rule myself. I'm important. I'm a big thing. I lead my home. I am 37 years old. Actually, I'm 40. I have much wisdom. My IQ is strong. So you move. I'm going to do what I want. That's called a hostility in your heart toward God. It's pride. And the scripture tells us in Ephesians 2, verse 4, everything changed. We were dead, alienated, and we had hostile hearts of enmity toward God. And because of his great love for us, he reconciled us back to himself through Jesus. It has nothing to do with you started to attend something or sing louder or be nicer to the poor. Nope. In our sin. Because he's that kind and gracious, he chased us down and brought us back to himself. So when you look at Genesis, I hope you've seen this. I know Tori's mentioned this many a time. Genesis is the gospel. It is constantly showing us not only what not to be, but who to be. When you look at last couple minutes, I promise I say that. I'm very well known for saying that, and it's always a lie. But I promise, last couple minutes, because I want to steward your time well. We see a couple of verses that stand out that represent Abram. And I think we'll, we'll be done here. Just a couple of them. Just so you have to see in this particular moment, just this particular moment at least, he lays out very specifically some gospel narratives. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that simply means if you're in a season of faithfulness and God is stirred up in you, Obedience, that is a thing to celebrate. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How crazy is that? James 5, 19 through 20. My brothers, if 
If any, anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I mean, these are just a couple of verses that are illustrating that particular action and response of Abram. Look, we're going to learn some things about Abram, okay? So if this is a part of you going, okay, so the bad guy is Lot and the good guy is Abram. No. I always need you to see this. They're both bad guys. So are we. No one's the good guy and bad guy. Like if you're convinced you are, that's, a, that's a, some serious pride. But God rescues and reconciles us, not based upon if we think we're good or bad, but because he is gracious and he reconciles his people back to himself because he loves us. He's a father who loves his kids. So in the same way that he has done this, we get the privilege of now being ambassadors of that same gospel. The doctrine of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. So two warnings here. First, let this warning be a morning where you examine your heart. Maybe you're, you're hearing the first two-thirds of this message about Lot. You're like, that sounds like me, but I don't want to talk about it because it just feels gross. So I'm going to eat big lunch. Where do y'all want to go? How about you give some time and some conversation, even in community at lunch. Here's some ways I see this in me. Here's where I see my control, my need for control, just really overtake things. My need to get what I want or I won't have joy. Here's where my cynicism comes into play. My bitterness, my short fuse. I hide behind, hey, I'm just a truth speaker. I just say some hard truths. No, sometimes you're just mean. Maybe what you need to do is examine what is it that's stirring that up? What are you thinking you don't have when he has given you everything? And then maybe you need to think through the ministry of, of, of Abram. When God, am I the person who sees that happen in someone who has hurt me? And part of me celebrates. We've been there, right? Someone does something wrong and you warned them. They didn't treat you right and there's this part of you that goes, you know, at least for a moment. You got what you got? She got what she deserved. Let's just let her sit for just a moment. As if we're the parents of them. Let's just let them sit there for a while and suffer in captivity for just a moment. We'll come get him. I'll teach him a lesson. Thank you, God, that that is not the mentality you had with the ministry of reconciliation to us. Thank you, God. Right? Um, so I just want to pray for us tonight, or this morning. It could be tonight somewhere. I want to pray for us this morning that both would be true and there would be conviction and there would be obedience toward both. God, we... We love you. We are here because we want to express you are everything we need. You truly are more than enough for us. You, your sovereignty means you have not withheld anything from us that we are desperately in need of. We have what we have. We are parachuted into this place of Austin, Texas, in these schools, in this neighborhood, in our homes, in our families, on purpose by you. So God, while we struggle with those things, would you be gracious to us by your Holy Spirit through your word this morning to convict us of any arrogance we have, to convict us of judgmentalism that we might have, to convict us of this snobbishness that we all have been guilty of in some way, shape, or form. God, would you give us, would you give us hearts that would sound the alarm for those who have wandered? 
to make us ready to sprint after them, even if it takes everything of who we are. Even if it's sacrificial and everything it costs, would we be those kind of people for you have told us this is what it means to be a blessing to the city. God, we don't want to go after the things of the world like this. Thank you that you give us good things. Thank you that you are a father like that. We also confess we don't handle gifts well. So God, we want to operate toward one another in this church, toward our spouses, toward our kids, toward our parents, toward our school districts, toward our employers and employees. We want to illustrate with our words and our ways that we are a content people and you are good to your kids. We love you. We trust you to do these things in Christ's name. Amen.